This is the story of Henry Sutton, Australia's greatest inventor. Hello and welcome to episode 2 of a podcast all about Henry Sutton, not just Australia's greatest inventor, but considered by some to be among the greatest the world has ever seen. Along the way, he became great friends with the likes of Nikola Tesla and Alexander Graham Bell, and a bit later on in the series, we'll hear about a speech Bell made in Melbourne which made some specific references to the threats and intimidation from a specific government department towards his good friend Henry. But before all of this, Henry Sutton was a kid growing up in a town called Ballarat. Now, if you're not Australian, or even a Victorian, here's a quick thing to know about this town. It's roughly 115 kilometres west of Melbourne, and it was built on the fortunes of gold mining. And when I say built on the fortunes, the 1850s saw one of the biggest gold booms in Australian history, and kicked off gold rushes in several regions nearby. And in the mid-1800s, it was considered among the richest cities in the world. That's right, there was a time when people spoke of New York, London, Paris and Ballarat. It was also the scene of the Eureka Stockade, the only armed rebellion by European settlers against the British colonial army in Australian history. Henry Sutton's parents, Richard and Mary, were living in Manchester in England and had read stories of the gold rush in Ballarat and boarded the ship to join the thousands of people travelling from all around the world to try their hand at striking it lucky. They arrived in Ballarat in August 1854 and set up camp just near Bakery Hill. Just two months later, Bakery Hill became the site of what is described as the Monster Meeting, where an estimated 10,000 miners gathered to protest the rough treatment and unfair taxing of miners by the ruling colonial government. We swear by the Southern Cross. We swear by the Southern Cross. To stand truly by each other. And fight to defend our rights and liberties. On the morning of December 3rd, British soldiers launched a surprise attack on the miners of Ballarat, who had banded together to build an armed stockade after the numerous provocations of the hated Redcoats. Australians call the Eureka Stockade the birth of Australian democracy and the forging of the democratic spirit. Henry Sutton was born almost exactly nine months later. Now his father had begun his work on the Ballarat goldfields playing a concertina at the family tent for his friends, then sold a wagon load of instruments as soon as they arrived, and continued to build the music business from there. Now Henry was homeschooled until the age of 10, and spent his time running around inside the Sutton Music Warehouse, surrounded by musical instruments and the tools to fix them. And not only was his father, Richard Sutton, constantly tinkering with harmoniums and concertinas, he was also keen on developing new ways to make them and to improve in the manufacturing process. And as the Sutton Music Store increased in size and the workshop was extended, a young Henry Sutton divided his time between playing music with his siblings, hanging around in the workshop, or, as it turns out, sitting in the Ballarat Mechanics Institute Library and reading everything he could get his hands on. Now this is a very important moment in understanding how Henry Sutton developed. The Mechanics Institutes were part of a radical Scottish movement to educate the working classes and the word mechanics of the 1800s didn't mean you fix cars. It meant you were a working class tradesman or artisan. And in the days before government funded libraries or adult education, 
the civic-minded working people of Ballarat were very keen on having a place filled with books, journals, magazines and newspapers that anyone was welcome to visit and broaden their mind and their education. In 1860, the foundation stone of the current Ballarat Mechanics Institute building was laid. By 1869, it had expanded to the grand building you can see today, filled with thousands of books, journals, manuals and newspapers from Melbourne and shipped in from England and the USA. This was where a young Henry Sutton gorged himself upon mathematics, chemistry, engineering, metallurgy and read the journals and reports from the Royal Society. It's no doubt where he would have sat and read the papers by James Clark Maxwell and Michael Faraday in electromagnetics, and it's where he would have been inspired to make his first invention, and that was to follow in the footsteps of Leonardo da Vinci and take on the challenge of flight. Here's what his great-granddaughter and biographer, Lorraine Branch, has found out about those early days. When it opened, it was it, this became his place to be. It, 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 it was his place of learning beyond what he'd learnt visually by being around the industry of mining in Ballarat. And he just absorbed himself and read every book on science in the library he could. I've actually got a list of the books he read, which, which is fabulous, uh, probably a few more, but there's a there's a list and gives you an idea of his thinking. And but he he'd read about history too and other things and tie it all in. And he had a great understanding of the arts. And he was an artist, a musician. He 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 dabbled in just about every aspect of, of life. He was an amazing creative person that just. The brain just didn't stop. It tends to run in the family. We still have a family of inventors. This journey he goes on, he's in the library, his first step into sending off his theories, his experiments to various organisations and publications around the world, starts with his experiments with an ornithopter, or should I say his experiments with flight. Can you take us through that? Yes, Henry was 10 years old when he decided to start experimenting with flight, as every 10-year-old does, of course. Uh, so from between the ages of 10 and 14, he came up with his theory of flight. He'd do experiments with studying the flight of birds and the flapping on the smoke glass to see how the, the movement went. And he built an ornithopter, which, which pivoted on a, on, a, on, a, on a pivot on a stand and flapped around and it, it was quite independent and, and um, obviously wrote to the Royal, Royal Aeronautical Society about his findings and over a period of time, by 1878, they actually asked him to write two papers on his theory of flight and aerial navigation which was published in the Royal Aeronautical Journal in, in some 40 pages and still proudly there and you can actually access them online, which is great. How old is he when he delivers his paper to the Royal Aeronautical Society? He, he was um, 18 years old, but he'd already established all of that. He'd written all of that in um, by the time he was 14. Did the Royal Aeronautical Society know they were receiving correspondence from a 14-year-old? I don't know that they knew exactly how old he was, but even Octave Chanute, who wrote The Progress of Flying Machines, quoted about Henry and wondered why he didn't put an engine with his with his ornithopter. But he, and he quotes, you know, Mr Sutton, <laughs> obviously thinking he was actually a grown man and had a thought of this. And I had to laugh when I read that because he was only 10 and 14 to 14 years old. 
that they actually thought around the world he was actually a grown man who had come up with this theory. That, that is just truly astonishing. But again, one of these things where Henry Sutton should really be on the first page of history it, you know, for various technologies that have changed the world. He is documented as the first person in Australia to do experiments with flight. Yes, he's the first person to experiment with flight in Australia and it took many years before Hargraves or or the other people, Lawrence, they, they began experimenting a couple of decades later and, and the rest is history. In 1870, the Mechanics Institute starts giving classes on behalf of the Ballarat School of Design and a 15-year-old Henry and his brothers and sisters were among the first students enrolled. Henry took art classes and trained as a draftsman, crucial to his future career as inventor and designer. But that was one year after he'd done something else that was fairly new, and that was to design and build the world's first electric motor. Now, Michael Faraday had come up with the first design for an electric generator in 1831, and Henry had no doubt read all about it in the Mechanics Institute Library. It was a copper disc that rotated between two poles of a magnet and generated a very low electrical current. Dr. Werner Siemens and Charles Wheatstone came up with a design for a dynamo in 1867 and two years later, Henry took that design and improved on it. At age 14, he came up with the, the first continuous current dynamo. But even being 14 and no money in, at that stage in Ballarat and no means to advertise the fact that he'd, he'd come up with this concept, this dynamo, he, he told Mr Ellery again, of course, who was... But uh, but apart from that, nobody had heard about that he'd done this. It was recorded much later that he had achieved the, the continuous current dynamo, but this was three years before Graham it was, was credited with it. But Henry knew that when it ran in reverse, it could become a motor. Graham didn't discover that about his dynamo until a couple of years later. <laughs> and what this actually does, this is something that really does actually change the Victorian era industry, doesn't it? Because we're talking, what, what decade is this? No, this was 1870, so, 1869-70. Hmm. And this is a moment where he's created the first electric motor. Yes, but nobody knew because he was in isolation in Ballarat and had no means to tell anyone, really. So did he make one? Was there one in existence? Yes. I haven't got one now, of course, but yes, he made one. Yes, I've got a drawing. Okay, so he makes the drawing and then does he go and publish that? Does he send that on? Um, it was published a few years later. In he he wrote he wrote saying, "Look, I've done, made this, you know," and then and a picture of it was published with his letter about it. Yes, but, but it was a couple of years after he'd done it when he was writing more prolifically to journals. He was he'd only just started writing to journals around the, the age of fourteen, and and so it took time for his letters to be paid attention to. But once they started paying attention, his letters began being more and more published with what he was saying and doing. Yeah. It turns out 14-year-old kids in mining towns on the other side of the world had less access to the media at the time. And Graham's name is listed in the history books as the inventor of the first direct current electric motor. It was the first, but definitely not the last time, Henry would strike upon an idea at the same time as someone on the other side of the world and would struggle to have his voice heard. But Henry had already moved on. It's the year 1870. A man called William Lyon in Connecticut invents a can opener, some 60 years after the invention of the tin can. The world's first underground tube railway opens in London, and a 15-year-old inventor in Ballarat has a bright idea. 
Here's what his brother Alfred Sutton recalled decades later. There were many things in which Henry interested himself which have only been recently developed in a practical manner, one of which I would very much like to mention, as it is of becoming of great interest at the present moment, that is television. When Henry was a lad of fifteen years old, he told me he had invented a method so that any big event in Melbourne could be seen in Ballarat by the medium of telegraph. The details are as follows. A building of the camera obscura pattern erected near, say, the Flemington racecourse, so that the race could be reflected by the camera obscura on the table below. The table would consist of a plate of many points and be broken up by a screen. The table would revolve, and as the points came into certain contacts with the wire in which there was an electric current, these contacts would run along the wire and be repeated on the table at the other end. In revolving the table, all these points would come into contact with the wire, and the picture would be repeated on the other end. Henry at the time was so sure of this that he wrote the particulars to Mr. Robert Lewis John Ellery, who was then the government astronomer for Victoria, so the invention could be in the hands of someone capable of stating his claim of being the first in this direction. Now that was Alfred Sutton talking about his brother in 1927. It's significant I mention that year, because that was the year a Scottish engineer named John Logie Baird transmitted a television signal between London and Glasgow, one year after his first public demonstration of television. It wouldn't be until 1885 that Henry Sutton's final design principles for his invention, which he called the telephone, would be realised, and a bit later, we'll meet another Ballarat inventor who recreated Sutton's vision for television in the year 2018. Here's a quick description of what he had to say about it. I, I, did, I did find at one stage that uh, I believe that in the early stages they've used actually gas pipes for the conduction of the electricity through the, um, using the gas. And they would have, at that stage, they would have had with one gas pipe. Um, I've seen something somewhere where he's obviously used a gas pipe. Very dangerous stuff. That's the voice of Graham Hood, the last lecturer in electricity at the Ballarat School of Mines. Australia's third oldest tertiary institution. Henry Sutton was the first lecturer to hold that position, having originally enrolled as a student in the year 1872. But he was also very fortunate that he's come at that time when Ballarat had the wealth of, you know, as I say, the wealth of um, Victoria came from the Ballarat and Bendigo goldfields. And the people made, that's where the money was, that's where the wealth was, and that's, of course, where the ideas were. You know what even makes this more remarkable, and, you know, with, with Federation University, the old school of mines. I think, you know how we think things, times are tough right now. Back in the 1870s, you know, late 1860s, 1870s, times were tough. The mining industry was dying, the big mines were taking over but running out, and all the rest of it. And somebody said, why don't, what are we going to do with all the technology and all the ideas we've got? Why don't we start a school? And they started the School of Mines. And I, I, I for one, some 50 years later, and I'm sorry, maybe years later than that, benefited from that. My life, I've benefited from that School of Mines. I went to that campus and um, I, I benefited from what somebody decided to do when times were tough. And this is where, you know, with Sutton's legacy, you, you, that, that's the thing. It was in that period of time where these people um, would have been, and there'd be others, you know, there'd be Henry Sutton's around the world that'd be trying to do this. Not many, but there'd be a few around the world all competing and doing the same thing. Henry now had three major haunts within two city blocks of each other. The Sutton Music Warehouse, the Mechanics Library, and now 
the chemistry laboratory and the metallurgical laboratory of the School of Mines. The year 1872. The first edition of Popular Science would be published in the USA. Another great Australian inventor, David Unipon, the man now featured on the Australian $50 bill, was born on the banks of Lake Alexandrina, some 500 kilometres northwest of Ballarat, and the Australian Overland Telegraph Line was completed, connecting Australia with the world. In four years' time, Alexander Graham Bell would announce to the world that he had invented the telephone, and Henry Sutton would rise to a new level of innovation, inventiveness and genius. That pretty much brings us to the end of episode two. All the quotes from history you've heard here and the historical information you hear on this podcast is based on Lorraine Branch's book about her great-grandfather titled Henry Sutton, Innovative Man. It's on sale now. Search for it online. My name is Jared Watt. I hope you can join me for episode three as things become somewhat electrified in the Henry Sutton story.